Well, good morning to you. My name's Tyler Levan, and uh, this is my first time preaching here. So I didn't know if uh, you thought maybe you went for a roller coaster ride, but uh, no matter how often we do it, uh, it's still that dependence upon God to come and achieve his good purposes in our midst. But no, uh, it's a joy, it's an honor to be here, it's a privilege, so I'm really excited to open up 1 Thessalonians uh, with you this morning. We're going to be in chapter 4. Pastor David has been working us through 1 Thessalonians And we're going to pick up right where he has left off. And, um, you know, it's a topic today that is uh, a wonderful one, uh, massive importance. Uh, Talking about living a life that's pleasing to God. And so when we get into the text, I'm going to read it here in just a minute. Uh, We'll realize he's going to apply this to two specific areas. A life of uh, sexual purity and a life of brotherly love. And, um, you know, the message uh, hits me hard. Um, Here in the last couple months, I've heard stories like this. God radically changed my life when I was 19. And I remember older gentlemen um, talking about people that they had worked hand-in-hand with, uh, falling into moral failure. Um, But I never really had that happen, thankfully, uh, firsthand. And... um, There was a gentleman that I was in seminary with, and uh, he moved uh, far away. He was involved in mission work, Um, and so his updates stopped stopped coming, and I I went up to CIU here, and if you don't know much about CIU, it's a big mission school, and so when people graduate, man, they really do. They go all over the world, and so uh, it's hard to keep in contact with everyone. Well, so for about a year, I didn't receive an update. Um, from, this, from this gentleman. And then uh, probably just a couple months ago, my wife and I received an update, and I noticed that in the update, he was next to this woman, and he had his arm around her. And I had this thought, right? Man, if I'm his wife, I mean, you know, it's one thing to be in a group picture, and you got your arms around everybody, but this looked a little bit more than that. And I was like, man, if I was his wife... I, I don't know that I'd really love to see this picture going out in the newsletter of his, his arm around this other woman. Well, uh, I have a Facebook account. I sign on a couple times a year, one time a year, just to thank people for wishing me a happy birthday. That's about it. So um, nothing against Facebook. I just, I'm not on there a whole lot. But I decide, all right, I got to figure something out. So I get on Facebook. And uh, when I got on Facebook, um, it had been about two years since I talked to him. And there were wedding pictures. Um, not his wife. Uh, I would later find out that he had left his wife all while the president of a mission agency. This is a guy I used to meet with to pray two, three times a week. We prayed for our families. And um, yeah, we've heard the story. He didn't want to go into detail, but we've heard the story enough times, right, to probably fill in the gaps of what all was going on. So, it's everywhere. It's this life pleasing to God we're talking about in the area of sexual purity. And uh, we look externally, we see it everywhere. We see it in the headlines, in the news. And then if we look internally, we also maybe see our own wrestlings with it. And so, we're in desperate need of what God has to say to us today through 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me read and then I'm going to pray for us. It says this, starting in verse 1. I'm reading from the ESV. Finally then, brothers... 
and this is brothers and sisters, it's a general term there, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed, so that you may, work, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. God, here we are. We're so dependent upon you. It's your word. It's your purposes. We are your people meant to live a life pleasing to you. And we know that in our own strength we can't do it. And so God, we ask that you would breathe upon us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we give you permission to put your finger on areas of our lives that that need to change. And we also ask you to come and empower that change, that you might get your glory through us. Lord, we ask that your word would have its intended effect upon us this morning. I put myself into your hands. I ask you to lead me and guide me. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's recap just a little bit before we jump in. Uh, the Thessalonians are actually doing pretty well as a church. Um, you remember back in chapter 1, he said, Man, I'm grateful. The Word came in power. The Holy Spirit came in power. You turned from serving idols to serving the living God. Like, I see the fruit, right? And so, so overall, things are going pretty good. And so it's with that backdrop, as you heard in the text, that a lot of this passage is going to come. Just as you are doing, do so more and more. I would imagine there's a lot of folks here that are striving to live a life pleasing to God. And so the text kind of carries that same, that same perspective. Just as you are doing, do so more and more. But then for others of us, there may be uh, areas of rebellion or areas that we've never even considered. What does it look like to submit this to God? And live under his kingship instead of my own. And so for, for that group, the text will have a different impact. But even though that they are doing pretty well, um, it doesn't take away from a sense of urgency in the apostle. Did you see that in verse 1? He says, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. 
This asking, this urging, right? It's almost like if I had a need and I came to you and I said, I I beg you to help me. I plead with you to help me, right? He's asking them. He's urging them. The mental picture it gives me is that, that father's heart that gets down on one knee and grabs their little boy or their little girl by the shoulders and with love and tenderness but seriousness says, live a life pleasing to God. Don't do this. It'll lead to your destruction. Do this. It will lead to your good. And so he's pleading with them. Even though things are going pretty good. It's the way I feel towards my friend that I mentioned at the beginning. Man, if I'd have known, I would have pled with him. Don't do it. Right? Now his wife, heartbroken. His daughter, heartbroken. So he's pleading with him. He's pleading with him. He says, we ask and we urge you, just as you receive from us. Paul had been there before in person, and so now he's writing this letter back to check on him. And he says that there in verse 1, this is how you ought to walk and to please God. That idea of walking, right? It's that day in and day out activity. He's calling them to this day in and day out striving to live a life of holiness, to live a life of that pleases God. And he says to do so more and more. Um, When we're saved, foundationally what happens is we are realizing that we're not created to be the king of our lives. And so we're repenting from that and all that entailed and we're submitting ourselves to King Jesus. And when we submit ourselves to him and when we follow him, when we become Christians, which literally means little Christ, Our entire Christian life, we're trying to look more and more like him because now we realize we exist to give him glory, as Maurice talked about as we opened the service. And so he's saying, do this more and more and more because for the Christian life, we're never meant to be content with our level of holiness. We never just kind of settle in at pretty good, you know? I think sometimes in life we sort of, uh, maybe we, we look over at our neighbor and we think, Ay, yikes, that guy's crazy, that gal's crazy, at least I'm a little bit better than that, or whatever we may do. But that's not the point of the Christian life. The point of the Christian life is to go back and see that person of Christ. And until our life looks like his, there's work to be done. And when we look at that perfect example, all of a sudden there's a humility of heart, like, hey, we got some work to do for him to be rightly portrayed in my life and so he's 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 urging them he's asking them he's playing with them keep going keep going verse 2 he says um for you know what instructions we gave you through the lord jesus christ now for those of you who i know you probably know this but um for others of you i uh i have a part-time job at the airport uh it's a huge blessing to my family we're kind of scattered throughout uh, the world, and so it gives us the ability to go see grandma and grandpa and not pay thousands of dollars. It's a huge blessing. But I've, uh, I've never been a part of the military, but with Fort Jackson being the largest basic training base in the U.S., um, we get to see a lot of military coming through. And so this word instruction that he hears in verse 2, uh, it's a good translation, but it's probably a little bit softer than, than what's intended. It has the idea of an authoritative command. It's a military term. And so, you know, it's really funny when you see the new recruits come off the plane, right? Back at the gate, 
When they come off the plane, they're laughing, they're hitting each other, they're chewing gum. It's kind of like, oh yeah, you know how we would have been at 18, new adventure, kind of walking through. When they break the threshold of TSA and they enter into that main lobby, now this is the mercy, I think. There's a lady from the USO that gives them a heads up. And about 20 more yards, you're going to meet the drill sergeant. Here's what you need to get in place before you do. Get rid of that gum, stop talking, take out your headphones, da-da-da-da. She rattles it off, right? Then when they get to the drill sergeant, man, it's, you know, right there in the airport. First thing, they're lined up. You can pretty much go anytime Monday through Friday, afternoon, early evening, and you'll see it. Now, one thing that I've never seen happen, I don't want to see happen, and I would not recommend to anyone, is I've never seen a command come from that drill sergeant and one of these 18-year-old young men, young women say, nah, <laughs> nah, I don't really feel like doing that, right? It just doesn't happen. It's because, look, you've signed up for something, and when you signed up for it, you knew the authority that you were submitting yourself to. And so when this drill sergeant gives you an authoritative command, it's not up for debate. It's not whether you feel like it. It's not up for discussion. You have one proper response, and it's obedience. How much more for the Christian when we sign up as a follower of Christ to submit ourselves to King Jesus, that when his commands come, they're not a suggestion It's not up for debate. There's one appropriate response, and it's obedience. And hallelujah, we don't submit. Let me say this the right way. We're not submitting ourselves to an earthly drill sergeant with flaws. We're submitting ourselves to a good, perfect, and holy God. And that although he gives authoritative commands, they are for his glory, but they're for our good. And so this command comes, and Paul knows that he says, these, these instructions I give you in verse 2 are through the Lord Jesus. He's acknowledging this isn't originating with me. This isn't coming through me. This is through the Lord Jesus. And then verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Often in our Christian life, when we talk about the will of God, we're talking about the particulars. What does God want me to do? Where does God want me to live? Um, Does God want me to be a missionary? Does he want me to marry this woman or marry this man? And these kind of different different questions. Passages like this, although I I believe God makes known those things lots of times, I think there are also times where he says, hey, ask for wisdom, seek counsel, Read my word, obey, you decide. Um, This zooms us back to the bigger picture. That more than what we do, God cares about who we are. It's the same same thing that I feel in a small degree towards my little girl. Uh, We have um, one little girl right now, a little boy on the way coming in October. But um, my little girl's name is Nora, and she's two. And uh, I'm dreaming for her. I'm praying for her. I want God to do wonderful, wonderful things in her life. If she becomes a doctor, great. If she becomes a teacher, great. If she becomes a worship leader, great. Whatever God has for her, wonderful. More than that, so much more than that, I care about the woman that she's becoming. I want her to be one that passionately pursues God. 
I want her to be a woman of prayer, a woman of boldness, a woman of humility, a woman of compassion, a woman of love. These things in my heart and my mind as her papa are so far primary to then the particular path. And I believe it's true with the heart of God. Yes, he cares about what we do. But far more than that, he cares about who we are. And so that's why he says in this text, this is the will of God. This is how you can live a life pleasing to God. Your sanctification, your holiness, you're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Now, when we hear that word holiness, uh, sometimes we can have sort of a cultural definition. And I think when we think culturally of holiness, maybe we go straight to the do nots. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But if you think about it in terms of the likeness of Jesus, when you think primarily about the likeness of Jesus, you probably think a lot more about what he did than what he didn't do. Right? And so this is what he's calling us for. Of course, the Bible does contain different parameters and boundaries of what we shouldn't do. And there's one right here in this text. And it's not the totality of God's will, but it's an important part of God's will. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. So there's the exhortation to live a life pleasing to God by living a life of holiness. And this is first being addressed in sexual purity. The culture of the day, before we address our own culture, uh, would have found this laughable. This was absolutely ridiculous to try to make this kind of statement. Because you see this term, sexual immorality, it's referring, it's a general term. It's referring to anything outside of one man, one woman, and the covenant of marriage. And so he's saying, look, all other things, we abstain from it. Check this out. This is Demosthenes. I'm going to read a quote. He was a philosopher of the day. Check out his high view of women. Ladies in the audience, who wants a husband like this? This is what he said. He said, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children. Can you believe that? I mean, like, it's one thing when, like, a guy says that in the corner, but when that's, like, the philosopher of the day that's, like, actually putting this in print, I mean, it gives you an idea of what was going on in this context and how laughable it would have been. The status quo of the day was sort of like, well, boys will be boys. And not only was many sexual partners sort of accepted, it was almost expected. And so Paul is addressing that context when he writes, and so for the culture at large, this could have been laughable. You know, it's not maybe too far from some of the realities of today. I think I've been mocked more times in my Christian life over this issue than any other. Um, I'll give you one example because I want us to, to reason together. Some of us, maybe even some of you here, when you hear that type of text, to, to only commit yourself to one woman or one man in marriage and that all other lusting, all other sexual activity is to be forbidden. It might be laughable to you. I know if I would have been told that as a 17, 18-year-old, I probably would have laughed at it. I, uh, when I first got to Columbia, um, we were leading a Bible study downtown in a government housing project for young men. There was a group of us. Uh, Alan Benedict Court, 
down there. And um, about 14 or 15 young guys came, and uh, they were about, I'd say the youngest was probably about age 9, and the oldest about age 14 or 15. And, uh, man, we just loved these kids, and we wanted to be a positive example for them. We wanted to share with them God's love and God's word. And so there was a group of us that were actually walking through First Timothy at the time. And so it was a Sunday evening. It was my turn to preach. And uh, my passage was that passage that talks about being a husband of one wife or a one-woman man. And so even these little boys, man, your heart breaks. But as I put forward God's plan for marriage and for sex and how they should wait and commit themselves to one woman, these little boys start mocking me and laughing at me. I mean, right there, you know? In that moment, I felt the presence of God come over me. And I said something to them that I had no, no intention of saying and it was not in my notes. Because, you see, lots of times when they were the ones engaged in sin, we don't always realize the evilness of it. But when we're the ones sinned against, all of a sudden, we realize something's not right. Classic example, the thief, right? A thief can steal every day, and he's so seared his conscience and hardened his heart, he doesn't think twice about it. Let him be stole from from one time, and he's like, heck no, nah, that ain't right. Right? And so it is with different sins. But as they are mocking me, I felt like the Lord just gave me these words, and I said, you know what? I said, you laugh and you mock because in your selfishness and your lust, you want to run around and hook up with this girl and that girl and the other. But what you don't realize is that the generation before you thought the exact same way. And it's why you now have the hurt of growing up without a dad in your life. Silence. Because I believe God connected some dots for them in that moment. They think it's just about this and that. They don't realize that when we don't obey the plan and purposes of God, there is hurt. I watched my dad walk out the door at age 10. It affected me in ways I could not comprehend. And here these boys knew they had a void in their life. None of them knew their father. None of them, not one, sorry, had an active dad in their life. Some of them knew their father. Maybe visit him once a month, those kind of things. A couple of them had dad in prison. There were some that absolutely didn't know. But not one of them had a dad in their home, loving them, teaching them how to be a man. And they knew it left a void in them. And here they are about to repeat the exact same thing because they mock the ways of God and they think it's liberty and freedom. It's slavery. It's hurt. Do you see why Paul brings us such a serious warning and why God is working through him to give us instruction? You know, it doesn't just have to do with dads and sons. It's pornography. If there's ever a sexual sin that the enemy can creep in and lie and say, this is just you and your computer screen. It's pornography, and it's a lie, even for the individual. I myself have known the shame and the guilt 
I've worked with countless young men. I, I have friends that have worked with countless young women. Shame, guilt. It brings problems in relationship. Even the world is starting to realize this. You can go on bbc.com. And there are countless articles of, of secular people that have nothing, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. And they're saying, hey, we got a pornography problem. This is not good for the intellect. This is not good for the heart. It distorts perspective. It makes us overly introspective. It's not good for society. And as the Christian, we're saying, yeah, it's not. That's why Jesus told us, even if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. What about sex before marriage? Adultery? Man, if, if there's anyone in here that's been in a relationship and had adultery committed against them, man, it brings pain. It brings destruction. And that one little moment of pleasure that that man or that woman thought was going to bring life and excitement, it's not worth it. It destroys us. Not to mention rape and sexual assault. I've been doing ministry now for some years, and it is heartbreaking to see the effect that these things have on people. And it's the reality of the world we live in. Here's the good news. When Jesus began his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he opened the scroll of Isaiah and he read from chapter 61 and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's, he's, he has anointed me to preach good news, to set captives free, to bind up the brokenhearted. The good news of Jesus is that if you're the one that's done these things, you really can find forgiveness. You. Maybe you put your hands on a woman and she didn't want them. You can find forgiveness. Maybe you left your family. You can find forgiveness. Maybe you are trapped in pornography. You can find forgiveness. The blood of Christ is powerful. And it'll cleanse you. It says it'll separate you as far, your sins as far as the east is from the west from you. Did you catch that second promise in Isaiah 61 that he quoted? He also said he's going to bind up the brokenhearted. For those of you that have been victims, there is a balm from heaven that brings healing and restoration. You don't have to be a victim for the rest of your life. This doesn't have to color your identity. It doesn't have to establish who you are. The life of Jesus speaks a better word over you and over me. As we consider the horizontal effects of not living according to God's word, we haven't even yet talked about the vertical effect. That the ultimate evilness of sin is not actually what it does to each other, even though that's incredibly evil. But the evilness of rebellion and not living a life pleasing to God is to look God in the face and say, No thank you, 
I'm king of my life. I'm going to do things my way. The very good, gracious, and holy creator that's given you everything you have and wants to lavish his love upon you, that's the evilness, is that we stiff-arm him to pursue whatever this temptation is. And so do you see then why he goes in in verse 4? He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. It's a holiness towards God. And it's an honoring of one another. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. Verse 5, it's the passion of lust. He's saying, hey look, I get it. Lust is that thing that, that comes from within the heart. And the passion idea here is that it's something that just overtakes you. That may be you today. That may be someone you know. That you feel so trapped in this thing. It's almost like it just overtakes you. And you don't even have a decision. He's saying, hey, don't do that. And and I, I got news for you. There really is freedom. You can find freedom. And he says this in verse 6. He says, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. On the positive side of things, think about how good it is when we submit ourselves to God and His purposes. If we give ourselves to God's way of doing sex and sexual purity, there's no more little boys and little girls growing up without a mommy or a daddy. There's no more single moms that are just having to try to make it happen and work and raise kids and do everything all by themselves. There's no more hurt and trust issues from cheating and wondering what he or she is doing behind closed doors. Instead, there's a generation coming up that knows I love you, I'm committed to you, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Man, I don't know what your family experience has been. But there is something in the heart of every person that just knows family's not supposed to break down. And even when it does and we try to kind of reason through it and rationalize it, there's something that just happens in the heart. Because we were made to be loved. Ultimately, that love is going to come from our Heavenly Father who is faithful and good and never leaves us nor forsakes us. But an expression of that is supposed to be the family. Man, and Satan does everything he can to rip it apart. And so then there's that that good appeal, but then also the appeal here says, the Lord is an avenger. What he's doing in the text is he's looking back at Psalm 94, where the Lord is put forward as an avenger. This This is scary. Because as we've talked about, there are consequences to our actions. But what he wants them to get, it's the same thing that Galatians 5.19 says. He said those who practice these things, those who make it a willful habit, a, a rebellion against the Lord. He said they will not inherit the kingdom of God in Galatians 5.19. Here he's saying, look, the Lord is an avenger 
in all these things. Brothers and sisters, I got news for you. When the Bible talks about that day when the Lord comes, it says that those who are in rebellion against him will be so fearful of him that they will ask for rocks to smash them so they don't have to face the holiness of God. This is what he's talking about here. The Lord himself is an avenger. Verse 7. He says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. The beautiful news of the gospel is that although that second time is coming and those who know Christ will be with him and those who are in rebellion against him will have to face his judgment, is he did come before, 2,000 years ago. And on that occasion, it was his blood that was shed so that we never have to face his wrath. Romans 8.1 No condemnation for those who are in Christ. But in this exhortation, the holiness, verse 7, he says, he's, he's called you not for impurity, but in holiness. This is, this is why he saved us. It's what we talked about in the very beginning. That because we are now followers of him, we are supposed to look like him. In our daily lives. And he says, when you disregard this, verse 8, you're not disregarding man. You're, you're disregarding God, and he's the one that gives his Holy Spirit. Another beautiful element of the Christian life is God doesn't just forgive us and heal the wounds. He actually gives us the power to walk this out. And it's by the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, look, when we, when we give ourselves to these things, we actually quench the Spirit's work in our life. And it's the Spirit that produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And he's like, so when you, when you step outside of the boundaries of God, you're, you're, you're grieving, you're quenching the Spirit's work in your life. And so we as Christians, we get humbled. It drives us to our knees each morning. And we say, Jesus, I agree with your words that apart from you, I can do nothing. But if I abide in you and you in me, I can bear fruit. And that if I walk according to the Spirit, Galatians 5, I will not carry out the desires of the flesh today. Man, it's every day, maybe 20 times a day. Whatever it's got to be for us to live lives pleasing to God, walking in holiness. I want to get real uh, practical for a second. If you're here and this is you, David and Irene, I know, would love to meet with you, pray with you, help you in whatever way. There's grace. We're, we're not up here pointing the finger at people and these kind of things. It's, we want freedom. We want the purposes of God to be. And so don't let the enemy lie to you and say, you got to keep this hidden. Don't let them know you did this or whatever. And it may, it may not be me. It may not be Pastor David. It may be a brother or sister. But you realize, hey, I just got to get this off my chest and I need help to get free. You will find grace in Jesus. 
Hopefully you'll find grace in his people as well. (laughs) Think about Jesus, that picture in John 8 when the woman is caught in adultery and all these people are ready just to stone her. The tenderness. He walks over to her. Not just does he walk over to her, he gets down on her level. He doesn't condemn her. He sees her brokenness over her sin. And he says, let the person who's without sin throw the first rock. And so there's a tenderness in his heart. The call to holiness is serious, but there's such a loving heart. He wants his kids back. He wants his kids walking in freedom. He's provided the forgiveness. He's willing to give his spirit. So he just says, come, 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 come. Whatever you've done, come. And we want to help you in that process. Whether it means you got to get a filter on the computer to gouge out that eye, so to speak, so that it's no longer a temptation. Or you need a weekly phone call. Maybe there's a season where it's every day. Whatever it is, we want to, we want to come together as brothers and sisters and help each other in that process to live a life holy and pleasing to God. Second thing he addresses, and I'm just going to give a couple brief comments because Paul's going to revisit this in 2 Thessalonians, is verse 9 through 12, and it's a life of love. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need to write for any, anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, that, that region. But we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. You see, there was this thing happening. Uh, maybe it was because they had misunderstood the second coming of Christ or maybe some other things, but it wasn't a time of need where they were leaning on other people to provide for their needs. It was like a perpetual laziness and an and a, and a, uh, unwillingness to work. Now, when you don't have your own business to tend to, there's a temptation to get involved in everybody else's, right? So that's what he's addressing here. And he's saying, hey, this doesn't fall under the umbrella of love. When you, when you become a believer, we're, we're now we're, we're to give love. And so we're to Work with our hands so that we have something to contribute, that we have something to give. I'm not talking about a time of need. We all hit times of need, where we, and that's important. You need to bring people in on that. We're talking about a perpetual pattern of behavior where there's laziness and, well, yeah, I'll just depend on these people for my living. And he's saying, look, that doesn't, that doesn't square up with love. And so that's what he's addressing here in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians. Sadly, this very soft exhortation that comes for brotherly love, they don't quite get the full extent of it because he's going to pick it back up a little bit stronger in Second Thessalonians. But as we wind down today, here's what I want to do. To differing degrees in our group, there's going to be different levels of struggle with sexual sin. The statistics are there. It would be quite foolish to think that we're the one group of people in all the earth that are immune to it. And so as the worship team comes back up, what I want to do is I want to pray. 
And I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing this last song about coming to the altar. If you need special prayer for any reason, there's going to be prayer teams in the back. And um, I'll be back there as well. We would love to pray for you. Now, if you come back there, it doesn't mean that it's just this. Maybe you have uh, a family member that you know is trapped in some sort of sexual sin. You want to pray for them. Maybe you need physical healing. Maybe there's a special request other than that that's on your heart. We're there to pray for you. We're there to pray with you, to labor with you. And so that will be back there um, during this last song. But even as we close, I do want to pray a prayer for all of us. I want to lead us in a prayer of repentance. I want to lead us in a prayer of submission to God's spirit and ask him to empower this. And so as we close, would you stand with me and just let me pray? And even as I pray up here, pray your own prayer to God in your heart. He sees you. He knows you. There's nothing done in secret. If you went to the depths of the ocean, he's there. If you went to the highest mountain, he's there. He knows you, and yet he still loves you the same. And he wants to bring freedom in your life. And so, Lord Jesus, that's what we're asking today. We're asking that you would bring freedom. God, we bring to you our sin We bring it to you and we say, forgive us, cleanse us. Bring that Godful sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life. God, because we know when we confess our sin, you wipe it away that there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no condemnation, but there's true freedom in you. And God, we submit ourselves to you and to your Holy Spirit. And we say we cannot do it in and of ourselves. And so come and empower your good purposes that you might get more and more pleasure from our lives as we taste and see that you are good and we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.